welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lin, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China and the World. It's been called the age of malaise, with young people in China advocating lying flat as the economy slows down dramatically. The unemployment rate for urban youth aged 16 to 24 hit 21.3 percent in June, and then the government stopped releasing numbers. So this week we're talking about Gen Z in China and their existential crisis. We're joined by two brilliant guests based in China. Stephen Sunjiao is a Gen Z writer at Chaoyang Trap, which explores contemporary China through marginal cultures. Yanling Jiang is the founder of Aperture China, a China-focused research and strategy consultancy, and also the producer of a Substack called Follow the Yuan. So last month there was this. Quite unusual street party celebrating Halloween in Shanghai, which is of course not a normal holiday.、Uh, Yaling, you were at that party dressed as a recycling bin.、Um, tell us about it. Do you think it was just a party, or was it symbolic of something deeper and bigger? I think it was symbolic of something bigger, but probably not in the way the media and、uh, especially foreign media interprets it. I don't see it as a sign of defiance, but maybe just for self-expression because people need to find an outlet for self-expression. I see that actually across different aspects of life. For example, the ones who would probably be in the 2019 Hong Kong protest,、uh, they're now opening bars and restaurants in Hong Kong and Shanghai. I I actually know someone like that. And they will probably、uh, be cafe owners instead of joining more movements.、Um, so I think, especially in the consumerism-oriented city like Shanghai, people usually find ways in consumer culture to express themselves, which is, I think, healthy and also on the larger context. Safe. And can I ask why did you dress as a recycling bin? <laughs> so I'm also pretty old compared to Stephen. I'm <clears throat> I'm a millennial, so I can't say that I understand Gen Z that much, which is why I'm、um, planning to do a report on them next year. But I, from my history of participating in Halloween, I find that only wear I don't only wear that uniform once, and the it will kind of just bury it'll be buried in my closet. So this year. I really want, wanted to find something that I can maybe reuse in the future. So、uh, when I see this recycling bin on Taobao, I just think that oh, if I even if I don't use it this year, I can save it for my children's、um, class or something. I don't even have children yet, but I'm already thinking <laughs> that far. And in terms of this expressing themselves through consumption, like, did you see any outfits that you thought, oh, that's really clever, or that's a bit subversive that that impressed you? I think the really impressive outfits usually go with their performances. I saw this girl. I think it's very. This is a very China specific, gun as we say, or like insider joke. So,、um, I think this girl was trying to、uh, imitate this famous singer Na Ying, and but instead of Na Ying, which is translated to, I think there, Ying. Um, she called herself Zhe Ying, which is here Ying, and、uh, she would just repeat all the like 
I think uh, the famous conversations or the comments that Na Ying threw on uh, reality shows. And she was really, really popular. People were taking pictures of her and with her, and she became like a sensation on Xiaohongshu later on. So Stephen, you count yourself as Gen Z, even though you were born in the US, but you went through school in China and now you're at Stanford. What, what are the things that you think mark out your generation from those who came before? With regard to the Halloween sort of celebrations in, in particular, I, I do agree with Yaling that it's mainly a sort of expression of individuality. And, you know, it's a very particular kind of individuality. Uh, like, I feel like in previous generations, perhaps the individual is oftentimes expressed through certain status symbols. Like, you know, you have, used to see like a, a lot of LV and like Gucci and that sort of thing. That used to be seen as something very desirable. I think our generation is sort of, uh, that sort of thing is seen as not as uh, sophisticated, sophisticated anymore, or even, you know, in some cases it's a little boorish. Um, and, you know, for Halloween, I felt like people were much more focused on expressing not some material thing, but rather their own thoughts, ideas, or things that they're interested in. And yeah, I, I generally agree with the idea that it's not inherently political. I think most people there are just there to, to express themselves rather than uh, send some political message. At the same time, people who are politically inclined, they will always take this sort of opportunity where individuality is allowed to be expressed to sort of kind of push their own ideas, right? So you had the person who dressed up as Lu Xun. Lu Xun, the famous author. Yes, yes, the famous author who uh, he once wanted to be a doctor to sort of, you know, help his country modernize. But then he, in his opinion, right, the, the main issue of China was not necessarily technological or, or medicine or whatever, but some, you know, some kind of political or psychological issue. And and so, yeah, you, yeah, you had someone who dressed up as that. And That's a pretty learned Halloween outfit, isn't it? It's like going as Dickens or something. <laughs> Kafka, I don't know. I, I would say that most people in China are also quite familiar, or, or like definitely familiar with Xun, right? And sort of his whole story, because that's something you learn, at least in Beijing, that's something you learn in middle school, probably for the whole country, actually. It, it's a bit subtle, but at the same time, it's, it, it is something a lot of people will get. Um, and obviously, with the Dabai, the people dressed up as the COVID sort of security uh, or the COVID testers, right? That's something that everyone would get because you saw them just everywhere. Um, so, yeah, I, I think even if not everyone takes, not even if most people participating aren't necessarily interested in political, this sort of thing will always have some kind of political connotation because of the space it provides to certain actors to sort of. Um, express more, say, sub subversive messaging. And and Yaling, you identify as a millennial um, growing up in the Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao era rather than in the Xi Jinping era. I mean, um, how, how do you think the millennial generation differs from Gen Z, um, you know, having a sort of a marketing perspective on this? I think I would just to maybe tell you a bit about how I think my generation was raised up. I think we had a more international upbringing, like although we didn't like really travel, um, like like when I was younger, I didn't travel that much. But we are always we were always consuming international content like from the U.S., from Japan. It was on national TV, and I think when as far as I remember, like the economy was always on the rise, so we would always assume that every tomorrow is better than yesterday. Um, 
Yeah, I think the Gen Z generation, um, I think one really big marketing trend we've uh, witnessed is the Guochao trend, which has gone through three phases already. And I think it started when the Gen Z generation came into society, I graduated and started finding work in society um, because during their formative years, she took the helm. Um, I think it was one of Xi's priorities that we um, resonate with Chinese culture so that we can also resonate with the party, with the state more. So this generation grew up without probably without watching Japanese cartoons, American TV shows. They grew up with Chinese cartoons. They were taught to love their traditional culture, love their country. And as in return, when they enter into adulthood, when they have the spending power to buy things, they tend to choose Chinese brands. And I think some people translate Guochao as China chic. <laughs> I don't know if that's uh, an accurate translation because it's not really just about fashion, is it? But Stephen, how do you think? Do you, does that description resonate with you and the people that you went to school with? I think there is some truth to it, but I actually think in large part it's because we, some of us kind of, I think we take a lot of the internationalist stuff for, for granted because by the time that we were growing up, the novelty has worn off when it comes to Japanese anime or like American television shows. People watch those things still, but it's not some huge like world-breaking sort of, oh, I've never seen something like this before sort of thing. It's just something you grow up around normally. And so I, I think a lot of it is just the novelty of that has worn off. And and so people are kind of turning to alternatives. People are kind of maybe, you know, looking more inwards for Chinese things. Uh, you know, honestly, because when you talk about Chinese consumer products, right, there are a lot of them that are actually quite decent right now, or, or at least good value. Uh, and that, you know, comes with growth slowing down. Um, and, you know, you don't have that sort of break net sort of change that you had before. I, I think some people... Growing up, we are definitely like fairly nationalist, or you know, they don't like the they they don't think of the outside world as well as the previous generation. I think that's definitely true. I'm not really sure how true that is. That is how how much that holds across a macro level across the entirety of Gen Z. Hmm. And what do you make of the Guochao trend? Like, um, I mean, how how um how do you interpret that? I mean, like, I I have like some like my my phone case here is like decently Guochao. It's, it's a dragon thing. It's very red. It's a red phone case with sort of Chinese style dragons and clouds. It's very pretty. Exactly. So like, I, I'm very much not like I'm not a nationalist at all, right? So uh, I think for most people, it's just that Chinese brand products are not. It's not just cheap, shoddy, made in China things that uh, like weird manufactured goods they had in the past. Like Chinese, a lot of Chinese goods are. You know, they're decently priced, they're decent quality, and very importantly, they're sort of more tailored to Chinese consumer taste, as opposed to, say, a lot of, I don't know, European or Japanese or American product products, which will be naturally more catered towards, you know, taste of other countries. Uh, so I, I think, in my opinion, a large reason for the phenomenon is just the fact that, like, Chinese manufacturers and firms have grown, and they're kind of able to better target domestic um, audiences than say international firms, but yeah, there's certainly also a certain trend of you know buying China made. You have the whole Guochan thing. Like I certainly think 
that like some people buy Huawei products because it's Chinese made, right? Um, and that's also not unique to China. Obviously, in America, you have like buy, buy American made, you know, buy American cars, that sort of thing. So I, I do think that maybe that is impetus for some things. But in my opinion, I think the sort of economic logic behind these Chinese products are just a better fit for me is probably the main thing driving uh, Guo Chao here. Yeah, I think I definitely do agree. What made it really big, I think, is the policy push and which um, relates back to my point of how Xi Jinping sees it as a really important tool to push forward his agenda. So the propaganda department and the, the regulator that's in charge of TV and film started making and sponsoring a lot more shows about Chinese culture. There'll be competitions on uh, national TV for young students to learn about calligraphy, to learn about uh, uh, which is something I feel like the millennial has kind of stayed away from because we don't think that's cool. Um, and at this point in 2023, I think Guosha has already in infiltrated into everyone's everyday life from what people eat to what they drink to how they travel. And the other day, I just bought a Guochao fried chicken at Fresh Po, <laughs> which is a fast retailer, which is crazy to me. How can a fried chicken be Guochao? But I think <laughs> how they made it is just they they made it they made it into like a lu chicken first and then fried it. So they marinated it in some Chinese spices and then fried it. That I think symbolizes. Um, how people have different interpretation of Guochao now. And I really very much agree with what Steven said about how the Chinese companies have upgraded their supply chains, their research and development, their packaging, their marketing. I think that all happened during the first and second uh, phases of Guochao because before COVID, we also saw um, consumption upgrade. I think that's what that's when company realized that they need to make changes to uh, stack up with the foreign competitors. And these days, yeah, I think everything that's made in China, designed in China, Chinese brand, Chinese technique, Chinese spices, everything can be called Guo Chao. And one phenomenon you've written about, Yaling, um, that I hadn't really come across much before is this idea of full-time children, um, which might be both a Gen Z and a millennial thing, um, because there's people in their 30s who are what you call full-time children. Can you maybe explain this phenomenon and, and what you think's behind it? Um Yes, full-time children, I don't think it's a widespread phenomenon, but they, these people tend to also vlog and blog about their lives. So I think what they are doing really speak to a generation. For example, I'm also in my 30s, and when I go home, I'm also kind of full-time children, which means that my parents uh, would take care of every aspect of my life. Um, I don't have to worry about food. I don't have to wor worry about paying rent. I can just be happily uh, kind of ever ever after. And uh, um, I don't have to find a job. My, my job is full-time children. As long as I make my parents happy, who I can see as my investors and my, as my boss in that sense, I can, I don't need to make any changes in my life, basically. Stephen, I wanted to ask you about another trend that um, was emerging. I saw, I think earlier this year, there was a whole set of 
people taking graduation photos, which were kind of slumped as if they were dead, um, you know, over park benches or lying down. And some people were calling it more dead than alive. That whole kind of zombie thing. Do you have friends that were doing that or talking about that? And why do you think that got big? Yeah, I do think this is just sort of the latest instance of a general trend of people, you know, lying flat or letting it rot. It definitely differentiates Gen Z in a sense where people are a little tired of the whole, you always have to be sort of racing and competing and you need to be accomplishing something either for yourself or or for the country or whatever. Like people are sort of tired of that. That sentiment started before the, the lockdown and the ensuing slowdown because of that, frankly. So or young people are tired, not because of the slowdown, all of that might have exacerbated, but it was really a reaction to actually the sort of breakneck growth and these really intense working conditions that ensued along with that. Um, So as an example, when I was in high school in senior year, I think, so this was during COVID, but it was before, at that time, everyone thought China was doing like a great job with COVID. Like everything was pretty much, pretty much normal as compared to the rest of the world where uh, things were in chaos, well, supposedly according to like state media, right? Um, Bili Bili, the Chinese video streaming platform, they came out with a video called uh, Ho Long. It was like this very positive video about the youth and how the youth are like pushing the country forward and they're they're doing all these spectacular things and they're, you know, they're really going to change the future. And like a lot of reactions to that was actually very negative. Like a lot of the youth were like, no, like, I, I'm not doing this. Why, why, are, why are you making me do all this for you? For what reason? I'm tired. Like, stop with this shit. Like, when I was in high school, even before, um, you know, the, the idea that China was, like, really slowing down became commonplace. Uh, I think it was a common sentiment among youth that things were moving too fast. And, you know, as an individual, you don't have much time to actually do things that you want or that you're interested in. And instead, you just forced into this race of kind of working all the time and you don't know what exactly that that's for. So yeah, I think the that whole college graduation, like sort of lying down, slumping down dead sort of thing is just the latest example of uh, kind of this disillusionment with the previous sort of go-go era um, of just working hard and, you know, you don't know exactly what that's for. So Yaling, how do you see it? Is it angst or is it something deeper and darker and in a way more worrying for the government uh i think yeah i think for the government they must be worrying because uh we have a saying pua which is which doesn't translate well um so it, it symbolizes it's an acronym for pickup artist but it's now also widely used in common uh in workplace um so use PUA in a sentence. Um, my boss is constantly PUAing me. It means that my boss is giving me so much bullshit. I don't want to listen to his bullshit anymore. So <laughs> it, it's the problem. It kind of for means the like gaslighting. For, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh wow, yes. Like thank gaslighting. You. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I feel like it's a big problem for the people who are making the rules for China, for the government, and for capitalists. Um, because it 
or like probably in the previous generations would be working so hard to provide for our family. We wouldn't, we would put our personal health and personal well-being as a, a lower priority. But now we don't want to do that anymore because over the years, we've seen so many cases where young people die actually at their jobs and work, and sorry, uh, why professionals die at their jobs. It's really, really worrying. Because of this culture of overwork. I think so. Yes, yes. So this generation and also I think the millennial generation, we are now seeking a work-life balance. And also I think that's connected to the rise of various sports culture and the many fun things we can do. It's not like we don't have anything else to do outside work. We are so busy with our lives. We can go cycling, we can go to the outdoors. Um, that has to thank to the development of in infrastructure and also the incoming of different uh, things for foreign culture and foreign consumerism culture that supports this kind of mindset. So I think that uh, the work-life balance is one framework, framework that we can look at this. And the second one I want to talk about is that how this generation, especially the Gen, Gen Z generation, are more willing to defy traditional norms in relationships and workplace. And they are also more willing to defy stigma. I think they're doing a lot, they're doing it a lot better than millennials. I think, especially in workplace, um, there's another thing that that's called the Ling Ling Hou Zhen Dun Zhi Chang, as in the the people who are born after 2000, they are rewriting the rules of workplace. We kind of say that as a joke, but it has some truth. Like they, if you tell them to do overtime, they'll be like, "Why would I want to do that? Those are for people who are inefficient at work." And there were um, some really funny videos of how the uh, young, the, how the young Chinese Gen Zs are buying mi xue bing chen or milk teas for their bosses during meetings when the boss asks them to set up like coffee or tea. Um, it's really funny to see how like a man in his 50s and 60s slurping milk tea with boba because that's what his Gen Z employees like. Instead of the sort of lovely green tea that he was imagining he was going to get. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Stephen, one way that Gen Z is different um, measurably from the millennials is that there's just a lot more guys than women, thanks to the one child policy. And some of the Gen Z years, you have like 116 men for 100 women. Um, and you immerse yourself in for this wonderful article about Chinese incels. Um, where you, you know, I, it must have been extremely painful. Where you spent a lot of time looking at this um, this site called Hoopu or Hoops, which when you were at high school was just this NBA fan site that was one of your favorite places to go to, but now is one of the most notorious and toxic places on the Chinese internet. Um, when you say incels, I mean, how are Chinese incels different to say US incels that we might be more familiar with? Shunan, I and Chinese or. or straight male cancers right so i don't think straight male cancers are really organizing or uh kind of doing anything i i feel like their whole thing is that they're quite impotent and not able to do anything although actually now that you mentioned this they've gotten into like these very nasty spats with like online uh celebrity fandoms 
Um, and you know, sometimes they'll bombard like these online survey fandom websites and like they, like brigade them and just like spam hate messages and that sort of thing. And then the online celebrity fandoms they will brigade cool pool and they will spam like these basketball boards with like random things also. So you have like these, I, I I guess sort of on this sort of online organizing. That's certainly a thing. Great male cancer guys. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't think they're much of a force really beyond that. It's like a very hopeless group of people who I, if we're going to connect it to a broader like socioeconomic context, um, I feel I've been quite left out by this sort of, or feel they have been quite left out by this whole reform and opening up thing where a lot of people have prospered, but not them. And so I think there is definitely resentment about that. And uh, Yalin, what about Gen Z women? It seems that Chinese women are becoming a lot more assertive, a lot less, um, a lot more reluctant to get married and to hitch themselves up to uh, men who, you know, will require them to do a a lot of housework and childbearing they're actually rejecting a lot of women are kind of beginning to reject those norms at a time when the communist party itself is kind of pressing that homemaker role on women. I mean, how do you read what's going on? I think there's definitely a conflict between the official message and between what people really want. Um, I think the women, including the millennial women um, who were raised in the, in the city, um, they really don't hear they or they refuse to hear whatever that comes out from the government. They are doing what they want. They are setting their own standard and their, their own examples for the for their peers. For example, what uh, this is something that actually my mom told me. Like she she actually suggested I should do this later on in life if I cannot find a man. She was like, oh, why don't you just go abroad by a semen and have a baby that way like my my dad and I will help raise the baby in in our hometown I'm like that that is something I haven't heard but I think she's saying that because of the influence of social media they were role models of this this generation these role models don't live by the government standards. They don't. They don't live by the traditional standard. They are writing their own rules. Whether to have a baby that looks mixed because the semen is from other countries, or uh, there will be people who freeze their eggs in other countries, or they are um, they as uh, the, the members of LGBTQ societies. They are still. Um, it's still thriving, but kind of underneath the surface. So there'll also be relationships, relationships like that. Um, but it's just not something that's readable or apparent in mainstream media. One thing we've we've talked about in previous episodes is this idea of intergenerational trauma, and I'm kind of curious as to what you've seen, either in your own lives or with your classmates. Because a lot of millennials and Gen Z would have been raised by grandparents who would have seen and maybe even done quite horrific things during the Cultural Revolution. I mean, do you think there is any influence of intergenerational trauma on your generations? Intergenerational trauma as in uh, my grandparents have passed on those memories to me. Yeah, either not necessarily consciously, but just through the way they raise you. So through the way they might raise you to, you know, avoid 
the sorts of things that happened in their lives? I think now, surprisingly, they've never discussed anything about Cultural Revolution or the Tiananmen incident while I was growing up. Um, it's, yeah, it kind of speaks to what Louisa wrote about in her books. Um, I think they only started to have that conversation actually during COVID because I think it also it also brought back a lot of memories for them. So they started ha having discussions or kind of just retelling stories from the past, from the Cultural Revolution, from the Great Great Leap. And I also started asking them a lot of questions, like the similarities of how people were starving. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't think it's trauma. I think it's something that we need to reserve and remember. Otherwise, because of this internalized fear of not discussing politics with your family members in order to protect them, their memories will, will just be gone once they die. So I, I don't think it's intergenerational trauma. I think I would very much like to hear more and preserve them in my own terms. I'm just listening to what you guys have said. In a way, the picture that you're painting is sort of almost contradictory that you have this generation that are idealists and individuals and rule breakers, but at the same time, they're also sort of despondent about the future and lying flat and full-time children. But I do notice one thread that seems to run through it is that both of you keep talking time and time again about social media and the influence of it and online uh, influencers. And it almost seems like this is a generation whose reality is almost more virtual than real. I don't know if that's too much of a stretch, but I wanted to try this idea on you. <laughs> I think social media is only to play a bigger role in Chinese society in terms of t technology and the platforms people use. People nowadays get their information, their news from social media. They they get news from the trending lists, platforms like Weibo, Douyin, Baidu. And these days, all the platforms all have a trending list, uh, meaning that you can just go on, maybe have like 30 minutes to scroll down the news and you pick what's interesting to you. Um, another reason that kind of feed into this phenomenon, I think, is the kind of empowerment of self-media. These days, everyone can be a media platform. Um, I think that's also probably due to China's censorship that only uh, think state-owned companies can run media companies. But these days, there are so many independent uh, voices, although they may not have like diverse views, but there are so many uh, Chinese platforms. There are at least six to eight mainstream Chinese platforms. Um, I think the two, these two main changes in infrastructure are enabling people to express themselves, also record every little moment of their lives. But that also means that social media is now playing such a bigger role in people's lives. Everyone has a lot of power. Um, if they are unhappy about a brand or about a service, they, they actually will threaten the owner that I'm going to take you to Douyin. They don't trust the government to solve this issue for them, but they trust the social media because they know that the media traction and eyeballs in China will solve the problem for them. Stephen, do you have any thoughts? 
Uh, I really like the point that Luisa made about this contradiction you have between the the, the idealism and then the, the despondence of, of, say, Gen Z. Uh, and, you know, I, I think you can kind of reconcile them in the sense that the despondence arises from this inability to to fulfill your idealism, right? Like you have all of these kind of goals or maybe you don't even have goals, right? But you want, because you, you don't even get the chance to think of what you'd like to do because you're so busy and caught up with everything else. The despondence arises from the, you have this sort of hope to just be yourself and do what you want. And then you have reality, which is just, well, you have to work this job. You have to work long hours. Um, you have all these responsibilities. Um, you, you have to, and then you have to get married and you have to buy a house. If you're a guy, right, you have to buy a house and a car before you do that and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, uh, yeah, the response sort of arises from the kind of big contradictions you have between the economic reality of what is going on now and then the kind of new idealism that I, I suppose Gen Z has. Uh, and with regards to social media, I know I, I don't think it's a stretch at all to say like social media is kind of big at this because it's such a good way for you to vicariously sort of uh, live different lives, right? You know, you might not be able to actually say, I don't know, drive around the country and visit all these different cool places, or you might have not have the chance to actually go to like a small village and live like a very idyllic life. But you, you can watch someone else do that on, on social media, right? And then there is some kind of vicarious satisfaction through that. Um, and then just the sheer size of Chinese social media means that, you know, if you're looking for this, that sort of thing, like you almost will, certainly will find some kind of content that you think speaks to you. Uh, so I do think social media is big about that, about privating a simulated reality that uh, functions as some kind of escapism for, for people. Um, and I also think that that's, Social media is probably the most obvious example of that, but it's not just restricted to that. So there is like this has this thing has been built for a while now, but there is this kind of resort place built when I was in high school, maybe called in Chinese it's called Anaya. Um, I'm not I'm not I think in English it's called Aranya or something. It's like from Sanskrit, but it's like this um it's like this resort not too far from Beijing. It's in Hebei, uh, along along the coast, and then. It's like this really pretty uh, little resort thing. Uh, but the, what makes it distinct is that it also markets itself as this big sort of place for yourself to, uh, this big art artistic sort of community. Like you have music festivals, you have art, um, you have like uh, uh, plays and whatnot there. Um, and it was like very, very, very popular for some time because of this going on and like a lot of Gen Z people were saying, oh, I really want to go there. Not necessarily because it's a just not just because it's a beach resort or whatever, although it is, but because like I really want to be able to kind of live that like experience that sort of creative bustling community for some time, right? But like I I went there and it's just when you talk about real like artistic scenes, right? Like like New York uh, with the Bohemian thing, or or even like Seven Nine Eight before it was kind of uh control like it's always a grassroots movement where you have a bunch of artists kind of huddling up together and they're just trying to figure out some way to make ends meet and just produce what they want but Aranya is like it's it was it's like this big real estate project by this big developer and they just kind of forced the whole oh we're gonna bring big music vessels uh and that sort of thing here so like when you go there it's just like oh this is very commercial actually so that's just like this huge case of simulated reality right whereas people want some kind of escapism through art and music and it's provided in the form of like this big 
uh, commercial real estate projects. Uh, so yeah, I, I feel like people are really just trying to search for any kind of conduit for finding some other kind of meeting. And then, yeah, you have like a lot of commercial entities trying to profit off of that, I suppose, which is obviously natural. So, so Stephen, I think just to broaden this out, maybe one way that Gen Z is a little bit different to their predecessors is that things aren't getting better and they're aware that they're the ones being exploited on the altar of market capitalism, that there's this movement called the jewel side of the tribes who are just harvested over and over again. Um, maybe thinking back to your classmates from Beijing, how are people looking to escape this? Like, what's the most common strategy to, um, if you like, get out of the race? We've heard a lot about lying flat, but that seems a bit simplistic. So how, how are people dealing with this reality that, uh, that they're the exploited class? Well, I mean, as a disclaimer, right, like I went to a, like a prestigious high school and like I grew up in a very privileged environment in Beijing where most of my classmates were uh, you know, quite well off. So they're not exactly the ones being exploited, to be honest. So that was the Beijing number four high, high school, which is like kind of where the elite went, yeah? Isn't that where Bo Xilai went? I, feel I like. believe so. A lot yeah. of a lot of big wig sort of party officials and their children go to Beijing number four high school. The most common refrain is just to kind of drop out of the rat race, right? Like if they can't, if if they can't sort of dangle the carrot in front of you and and the stick, of course, in order to make you keep on working harder, then there's no deal tie for them to cut it, right? If you just decide that I don't really care, then um that they, they can't exploit you as much. So I feel like that's the most common response. Or no, that's the second most common. The most common response is just you kind of suck it up and you're like, yeah, I'm being exploited. What can I do? Uh, I, I do feel like the most common response is just, this is how things are. There's not much I can do besides just sort of get by and then sort of find joy in like the little things. And finally, Yaling, how, how do you see things playing out do you think gen z will kind of fall into line or are we going to see sort of bigger social changes as this generation of kind of you know almost hippies and dropouts as they age up right uh i think before i answer your question i like to i think to set up the the principal mindset i of how i usually see chinese people and how i explain this to brands and companies china is so vast i think the the trends we are seeing the funny vloggers or those who i mean yeah the funny vloggers we're seeing they only represent a very small group of people i think the mass majority if they decide to stay in china which i think most of them uh do they will just have a normal life. They, they'll continue on the path that they've, their parents have, um, and they will go on the tr traditional route of graduating from school, find a good job, get married before 30, buy a house. I think that will still be the main story for the majority of this generation. But the interesting things you are seeing, I think they do represent very few people and they do represent some people's aspirations but i don't think they define how this generation will go so to answer your question whether there are going to be big social movements i don't think so but there may be some random events like the white paper revolution that we cannot predict and foresee 
Um, so I can only say that much, but I cannot predict when that's going to happen. Fantastic. I think that's a good place to end. Yaling, Stephen, thanks very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you both. You've been listening to the Little Rip Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Many thanks to our guests and to my co-host, Louisa Lim. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China and the World. Our editing is by Andy Hazel, background research by Wing Kwong, our music is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danter. Bye for now.